Good morning, everybody. How y'all feeling? I don't, I, don't, I don't even feel as if I need to be up here right now. I feel like worship and prayer for kids was good enough. This is a good place to be. I think the Lord is already pleased with what we've done here today. And I guess my only job is to not screw it up this morning. So, <laughs> Well, it's good to see all of you this morning. Uh, for those of you who do not know me, my name is Corey. I'm the lead pastor here at Third Street Community Church. Um, I want to start, uh, as we did at the top, by, uh, by saying, first and foremost, um, happy anniversary to my beautiful wife of six years. I know, I know nobody else but, but, but my God and my wife that would be willing to stick with me for so long and through so many things, so that's pretty, that's pretty incredible. We, uh, well, let's start this way. My favorite movie. What's, y'all, what's y'all's favorite movie? Go ahead, tell me. No, t- tell me. Come on. We're not playing. Come on. Okay. Okay. I'm, w- I'm waiting for a right. Th- that, those are all wrong answers. Come on. Keep telling me. Keep telling me. Okay. Oh, wow. Really? Uh, no, the correct answer, the correct answer, I'm sorry, you all got it wrong. The correct answer was Gladiator. The correct answer was Gladiator. My favorite movie of all time is Gladiator. How many of y'all seen Gladiator? Gladiator is a dope movie. It's a story of a Roman general who loses everything at the hands of a corrupt emperor. He finds himself in slavery and he fights his way back to see justice realized. In the opening battle scene, Maximus, the main character, played by Russell Crowe, is rallying his troops right before they go into an important battle. It's the battle that's going to win the war for them. And right before they go into battle, he's giving them his prep talk, and, and, and he concludes it with one of my favorite lines, my favorite line of the movie, and one of my favorite lines of any movie of all time. He says, men, what we do in this life echoes in eternity. Church, the message we have for this morning is what we do in this life echoes in eternity. We start a new series this morning coming out of the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is a wild ride that if I absolutely had to, I, I, I would hate to reduce it to this, but, but if I absolutely had to, I would reduce the book of Ruth. I, I would summarize the book of Ruth in two, in two sentences. Number one, the decisions we make in the face of tragedy and hard times will have ripple effects into eternity. And secondly, even when we don't see him or feel him, God is always at work. For the next several weeks, we're going to dive into the book of Ruth the same way we all dive into our favorite series on Netflix. The way y'all binge-watched things this summer is the way we're about to binge-read the book of Ruth for the next several weeks. Verse by verse, we're going to read together. We're going to follow along together, and we are going to, to, to process what the Spirit is telling us. As the drama of the spirit-inspired writing unfolds. 
And so what better place to start than with chapter 1, verse 1. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Ruth. It's in the Old Testament. There's like the five books that start off the Old Testament. That's the Pentateuch. That's some law. That's some stuff you need to know. We're going to skip all that for now. Then you've got Joshua. You've got Judges. And then right after Judges, we're going to talk about that in a second, you have the book of Ruth. It's small. You might skip over it. If you see anything other than what I just mentioned, you went too far, go back the other way. And if you have your electronic devices, it's Ruth. Find it. (laughs) For the rest of us, it's up here on the screen. We're going to read the first five verses together. Here we go. It says this, chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. Verse 2. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Aphrathites, forgive me, from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with their two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, and the other a woman named Ruth. But about ten years later, both Malone and Chilion died. This left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. We start at the top. In the days when the judges ruled. In the days when the judges ruled. Well, to more appropriately, if you have your physical Bibles with you, to more appropriately understand what that even means, turn the page one backwards. It's the book of Judges, the very last chapter, the very last verse. It reads like this, in those days, Israel, the chosen nation, the chosen people of God, had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right. In their own eyes. So in the days of Judges, there was no king. There was no supreme authority on earth. There was only men to be left up to do whatever they felt like they wanted to do. Now, it's a dangerous place to be. That led to times of war and absolute chaos. If you read the book of Judges, that's what you're going to find. You're going to find a whole lot of war and a whole lot of chaos. And you're going to be like, what is this mess? Why is this such a mess? Well, it's such a mess because this, this philosophy called relativism was what was king in Israel. Do what is right in your own eyes. Whatever truth you perceive to be your personal truth, that is the truth you live by. Anybody ever heard that before? Relativism, where truth and morality exist in relation only to culture and society. Nothing is absolute. Whatever your truth is. If you don't feel as if something is wrong, it is not wrong. And this is incredibly dangerous. 
We talked last week about what it means to stand on Christ as your foundation and your truth. But what we read here, both in the book of Judges and now coming into the book of Ruth, since it's the same time period, is a story of a people and a family who have lost God as their central truth. When you don't have God at the center of who you are, when the truth of our Savior is not the guiding truth of your life, you find yourselves in some pretty precarious situations, lost, with no way out. So in verse 1, we have an instance of the shakable being shook. There was a famine in the land of Bethlehem. Now, we cannot skip over the beautiful irony that is within the sentence, there was famine in Bethlehem. Famine is when you had a time where crops would not produce like you expected them to produce, and famine meant there wasn't uh, the type of food and resources you needed to survive. And famine being in Bethlehem was Especially ironic because Bethlehem literally means house of bread. So there was no bread in the house of bread. Y'all catch that on the ride home. The thing about Bethlehem is that it wasn't, it wasn't exactly set up perfectly for the agrarian culture of the people of Israel. See, the people of Israel, what I mean by that is, is they like to produce crops. They like to farm. They like to do these things. And Bethlehem wasn't in the best place to do those things, but they were in a position as the chosen people of God to supernaturally rely on God to produce all that they needed. And year after year, the Lord provided so when famine hits, well, what are we going to do? So now this drought comes along, and this family we are to follow for the time being begins to look elsewhere. This family fled to Moab, led by the man of the house named Elimelech. Elimelech, once again, we got to get our Hebrew hats on. Elimelech means, my God is king. Huh. So we have a generation of people who do not hold God as their central truth. Famine strikes their land, and this family is led out by a man who's supposed to have religious ties. He's supposed to hold to the fact, his name says the fact, that my God is king. Perhaps if Elimelech is the central character of this story, this whole thing plays out differently. Perhaps if Elimelech was somebody who would have had some sort of religious affiliation as his name suggests, this whole situation plays out a little differently. Perhaps had this truth been the central focus truth of this family, maybe, just maybe, they don't find themselves in this situation. But in verse 3, the Hebrew identifies Elimelech as Naomi's husband. If you're going to identify a man in this time as somebody else's husband, that means he's not the focus right now. He's not the point right now, which tells us his truth or alleged truth was not the central truth of this family. So you have Naomi. Naomi, her name means pleasant. 
as we go along, you'll see the significant irony in that as well. And Naomi and Elimelech have two sons, Malon and Chilion. Malon means sick or weak. Chilion means frail or failure. Now, while it's true that due to the famine of the land, these children were likely malnourished, and so that's how they got their names, what parent names their kids frail, weak, sick, and failure? You know what I'm saying? I get it. My kid came out yellow. I didn't name her jaundice. I believe what we see in the naming of their sons is the true condition of Naomi's heart. She not only let her own circumstances affect her own heart, but she let her circumstances speak condemning words into the next generation. And then things get worse. She's already clearly feeling some type of way. She named her kids after her struggle, and then her husband dies. Then her children, who are now her hope at redemption, marry Moabite, outside women, and then they die. Leaving Naomi already, not very hopeful clearly, completely alone, or so she thinks. I want to pause right here to express that I believe we all in this room are at risk. We are at risk not only of being a generation whose foundation is not built on God, but we're at risk of misleading an entire generation coming up behind us from not knowing God at all. What the generation coming up now needs to know is that Jesus, my Lord, my Savior, my hope, my truth, speaks a better word than sick or frail. When the world saw an unworthy outcast, Jesus saw someone ready to receive new life. When the world saw a lame beggar, Jesus saw someone ready to be healed. When the world saw a demon-possessed man, Jesus saw someone ready to be delivered. Are you looking for new life this morning? Are you looking to be healed this morning? Are you looking to be delivered this morning? Jesus does not want you to hear that you are sick, weak, or a failure. Jesus speaks words of empowerment to you and to I, of love and of hope. And the word coming out of this section I believe we all need to hear is that Jesus speaks a better word over the generations. So we should be a generation that fights for the next generation. Because if you think about it, no generation doomed itself. Yeah, this section will get it on the way home. No generation doomed itself. So we, as the generation who will lead the one coming up behind us, can either lead with love, or we can name that generation and defeat it before it even gets going. We got to keep going. Chapter, uh, verse 6, verse 6. 
Then Naomi heard in Moab, the land that they fled to, that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah, where they came from, by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back to your mother's homes, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. No, they said. We want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, Why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' home, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else along the way? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. And again they wept together. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Naomi receives word where she's from that crops, it's all good again. Blessed is the Lord in our land. We all eat. Naomi, all the way from Moab, they didn't have texting. They didn't have social media. They didn't have phone calls. They didn't have mail carriers. The Pony Express didn't even exist back then. Somehow, word makes its way to Naomi. And she's like, oh, y'all blessed again? Well, I imagine her thought process just like many of us when we hear good things going on, was that God is blessing over there. So let me take my poor self over there because God must be over there, forgetting entirely that God never left you. The truth we need to know is that God never left us. God will never leave us. God is with us always. You ever lose sight of the fact that even in hard times, God is with you? You ever go out on a mission chasing God out of desperation and heartache? You ever go in search of God's redemptive love, forgetting that all along it's right next to you? Isn't it interesting that we are sometimes willing to go on an Indiana Jones-type quest for the blessing of the Holy Grail, but don't want to accept the presence or relationship of the one who offers the blessing right where we're at? So Naomi gets up, packs her bags, and she goes on her way back to the homeland. Along the way, she looks at her girls, and she's like, y'all, don't follow me. Don't, don't come with me. There's nothing for you where I'm headed. The most likely way for you two girls to be okay is to marry again, and that's not going to be an option where I'm going for a couple reasons. Number one, I'm too old to get married again. And even if I did and, 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 and bore another son, what are you going to do? Wait for him to be old enough to marry them? 
And by the way, you're Moabites. Where we're going is Israel. I mean, they might not like hate you all the way, but like you're an outsider. No Israelite is going to be like, hey, what's good with that outsider? Let me marry her. It's not going to happen. Girls, your best shot is to go back. Your best shot for safety, for security, for peace is back that way in Moab. Go back there. Because all that awaits for me, yeah, I'm going to be eating okay because it's blessed again over there, but I'm going to be poor. All that's waiting for me in Bethlehem is my own poverty, and I do not want you to share in this poverty. You still have hope. She says, things are less bitter for you than they are for me. The Lord has dealt very bitterly towards me. Naomi has written herself off entirely. Entirely. And so Orpah is persuaded to go home. But we shouldn't look negatively on Orpah because she's acting in submissive obedience to her mother-in-law. And she leaves to return to what would be the cultural norm of becoming a wife again. The focus of this piece of scripture instead should be that Naomi no longer views herself as a valuable piece of God's plan. I'm sure there are some of us this morning who have written ourselves out of God's plan. I'm sure there are some of us this morning that are going through something where we don't believe that God has a place for us. We've been a victim of some type of tragedy and we let our hurt speak to our destiny rather than our Lord what tends to happen is we write ourselves off and we write off whatever type of hurt we just experience and we call it protecting ourselves we say I'll never love someone again because I just loved and then I got hurt we say I'll never do such and such again, because I did that and I got hurt. We say, I'll never trust whatever it is. I'll never trust the church again. Because at that last one, I got hurt. And what we're doing by, by saying those things is we're allowing our pain to halt our forward progress. We think the tragedy that we have gone through disallows us to continue in God's plan. Because if God is allowing such pain, I must be in wrong standing or outside of his intentions. So forget God, forget whatever just hurt me, and forget hope altogether. Family, we got to get rid of that theology right now. We got to squash that in the name of Jesus right now. We got to look that in the face and say, not today, Satan, get on up out of here in the name of Jesus right now. We have to stop assuming that God is like Orpah, who is totally in her own right to look at somebody's situation, to look at your hurt, broke situation and be like, yeah, you know what? You're right. I'm good. I'm out later. Let me take a moment to encourage you. If you find yourself in that place, surround yourself with community. 
Surround yourself with people who have found themselves aligning their central truth with the central truth of our Lord and Savior. Here at Third Street, we've got, we've got parks that are happening all the time. Those are our communities where we're all as families just living on God's mission together. We're all trying to figure this out together. Let me encourage you to join a team somewhere around here and, and, and get to know the people on your team and, and, and y'all serve together, y'all get to know each other, you work alongside of each other. It's crazy the things that happen. If you're even an ounce athletic, come play basketball. We got leagues and stuff. Surround yourself with people that you want to follow. Surround yourself with people who can be an encouragement, who have found their central truth. The central truth that God communicates to each of us. Let's keep moving. Verse 16. Ruth's response. As Orpah went home, Ruth clung to Naomi. Ruth replies, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate you and I. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, when Naomi saw that it wasn't no getting rid of Ruth, she said nothing else. So it's, the two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their ar arrival. Is it really Naomi? The women asked. Naomi says, don't call me that. Instead, call me Mara. For the Almighty has made my life very bitter. For the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away from this place full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring, at the beginning of the barley harvest. Ruth responds to Naomi's pain with the utmost loyalty. Ruth declares her undying dedication to Naomi and refuses to leave her, not now, not ever. She realizes that this means she's going to be cut off from her people. She realizes that this means she's going to be cut off from her family, from her culture, from anything that she's understood. And she goes as far as to say that your people are now my people. Your life is now my life. Your God, Yahweh, is now my God, my Yahweh. I'm willing to lose everything I have to stay fully faithful and loyal to you. And then when they get there, one of the realest passages in all of Scripture, if you go beyond casual reading, the town rejoices. Naomi, you're home. They run out to see her, to embrace her. It's so good to see you again. 
And she greets them with, don't call me that. Don't call me by my name. Don't call me by my God-given name. I am not pleasant. God has dealt bitterly with me. God has caused my life to be awful. God is my enemy. God has raised his fist against me. God is bitter towards me. You ever prayed a prayer like that? You ever said that to somebody in conversation? You ever felt that way in your heart, but you were afraid to admit it? God has caused these things. God is my enemy. God has done this to me. I know many pastors who will describe bitterness as anger plus unforgiveness equals bitterness. Anger and unforgiveness. Now, we know on this side of history that neither of those should be attributed to our God. We know now that God's anger was satisfied on the cross with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we also know that grace through Christ is extended to us all. So his anger, his unforgiveness, that's been dealt with. That's not a thing anymore. So the only bitterness that actually lies within someone here is with Naomi. The only anger here is Naomi's. The only unforgiveness here is Naomi's. The only person in all of this situation that's bitter is Naomi. The only person who has made this difficult is Naomi. Naomi is holding on to anger. And hey, I get it, right? Anger over famine, anger over sick kids, anger over her husband passing away, her children passing away. She built a family and she had to bury the whole thing. I get it. It's angry. Unforgiveness, too. Pretty unforgiving. If you perceive that somebody else caused this, it's probably pretty difficult to forgive that person or that thing, right? It has made her so off-putting and bitter that she didn't even want to be called pleasant anymore. Are you only pleasant when things are good? It has made her so off-putting and bitter, yet Ruth stays committed. Moreover, the word for us this morning is that God stays committed. When I was in high school, I had this English teacher. I called her Miss G. Miss G was the realist. She was the best. Uh, in, in her time in teaching us, Miss G lost her husband and she lost her daughter two separate times. And I watched as through tears of her pain, she didn't miss a day and came in and not only taught, but I watched before I was even a Christian through tears of her pain as she ministered to every child that walked in her class. She would 
pull me, and I know this might be hard to believe, but I wasn't as well-behaved back then as I, as I am now. She would pull me out of my study halls so I wouldn't get in trouble. She would take me to her classroom, and before I was even a Christian, she would tell me about Jesus. She was the first person to ever prophesy over my life and tell me that I would be a pastor to people, to told me that I would be a missionary to the world. In the midst of her tragedy, she clung to God, and the natural byproduct of her doing so changed my life forever. Even when we don't see or feel God, he is always at work. Even when everything that is happening seems so negative, God is at work. Everything we go through in this life is meant to point us a little closer to him. Everything we go through in this life is meant to make us look a little more like him. And even when we think that we've been left abandoned, damned, and out of the will of God, God relentlessly clings to us. And we cannot let our own bitterness stand in the way. Family, we need to be careful of how we allow tragedy affect our soul. This road is tough and will inevitably hurt us in extremely personal ways. The question we have to answer this morning is, will we stay committed? This is a call in all senses to commitment. When tragedy strikes, when hardship strikes, will we allow our anger and unforgiveness to set in and fester? When tragedy and hardship strikes, will we, out of our pain, leave the path and look out for ourselves? Or when tragedy and hardship strikes, will we cling to God? the way Ruth clung to Naomi, the way God's son Jesus clung to the cross to save our souls. Will we acknowledge that even though I can't feel you now, God, I know that you are not done with me. And we all need to be very mindful of this decision because this pain that we're going through isn't just for us, but it is for all those around us It is for all those who will come up after us. Our commitment, we decide today and every day in the face of tragedy, will have ripple effects to those around us and for generations to come.